Father in heaven, we know that your son Jesus came to be among us, to reveal to us your true face. And we pray that you would crush all our idols, let all our false ideas fade, and let us sit at the feet of the teacher and learn through his words and through his face what you're really like. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you'll know that we have been going through a two-part series on Luke 15. And last week, Pastor John talked about how these three parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then here the lost son, um, will all kind of work together and that there's kind of a a cohesive theme behind them. Um, I probably don't need to tell most of you that Luke 15 is one of just the most famous chapters in all the Bible. Um, Some have called Luke 15 the gospel within the gospel um, because it so expresses the heart of God toward the lost. It so expresses God's loving intentions for humanity. I mean, the interesting thing is, all right, we we talked about the gospel here and that the two crucial parts of the gospel is that the Son of God died for our sins and the Son of God was raised on the third day for our sins. And Luke 15 doesn't say anything about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So so why, why might we call it the gospel within the gospel? Well, because in order for God to superintend that he would send his Son to purchase the world, that he would send his son to rise so that we might have newness of life, in order for that even to happen, the father has to have an unbelievable heart of love toward people. Does he not? So that's, that's what, there's a difference between what theologians call just the activity of God. They call that the economic trinity. So what God does in human history to redeem us. To, to sanctify us, to bring us to glory, that's, you know, to, to reveal His Word, to choose Israel, all these sort of things. These are activities of the economic trinity. But in God's heart, before all time began, there's, there's who God is. Not just what He does, but who He is in His very being. That theologians refer to as the imminent trinity. And I think that what Jesus is talking about here in the prodigal son is nothing less than an explication on the imminent trinity. Who God is in his very heart. Of course he tells a story about it. How else? He speaks to us us of earthly things and we do not understand. How then will we understand if he speaks to us of heavenly things? Of course he's going to tell a story about it. But what he's after is to alter forever our understanding of who God is in his very nature. Who God is in his very heart. So this has been called the gospel within the gospel. It's also been called the greatest story of all time. Some people have called the prodigal son the greatest story of all time. I remember one time I was on a plane with a guy and I was reading scripture. And after a little while he starts to talk to me and engage with me. And he starts to ask me little questions about the Bible or whatever. And I explained to him that actually most of the Bible is story. Because um, he, he had, after talking to him for a few minutes, I saw this guy has like almost no Christian background whatsoever. And uh, so I'm talking to him for a little while. I said, can I tell you um, one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told? And he said, sure. 
And so I started telling him the story of the prodigal son, and I said, um, but Jesus talks about this father, which Bev just told so well for us. Jesus talks about this father, and he has two sons, and the youngest son comes and says, Father, divide your inheritance between us. It's such, such a disrespectful thing for the son to do. Is it not? I mean, even, even in any cultural context, to just kind of broach the subject of, hey, I'm just going to approach my father and I'm going to say, give me what's, what I got coming to me. Even in our cultural context, that would be a disrespectful thing. At the time there, the son could have been lawfully beaten and excused from the house forever. But the son comes with this audacious request. In Deuteronomy, we learned that, uh, that the younger son would have received a third, and the older son would have received two-thirds, so he would have divided it. As John mentioned last week, he liquidates his assets, and he goes off to a faraway country, and he spends his money on wild living. So I'm telling this guy on the plane, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I say, then he has nothing. And he has to be sold uh, because there's this famine and he has to be sold. He's basically a slave and he has to feed pigs. And I said, you have to understand, this would have been a disgusting job for any first century Jew. Even today, you know probably that, that Jews don't eat ham or pork or pig of any kind. They consider this an unclean animal. So for this Jewish, this young Jewish man to be exiled into this place of feeding pigs, this would have been disgusting. And the fact that he, he was so hungry, not only is he with these unclean pigs, but he's, he's even willing to try to like, eat and maybe like, attempt to kind of just taste what it is they're eating. And then the scripture said, I'm still talking to this guy, said, and then it says he came to himself. And then he came to himself. Well, that's one of my favorite lines in this story. Because what it says is, when we're far off, when we're in a faraway land, when we're far from God, we're not who we were truly meant to be. That's not us. Side story, cul-de-sac. Sometimes when you're preparing for a sermon, the Lord just gives that to you for somebody that week. And that's, it's a beautiful thing. Scripture talks about how we're prepared for every good work through the Scriptures. That's how we get prepared for the work of God. So when you start to read the scriptures, just kind of like, you know, the Lord's teeing it up, man. He, you know, get, get ready, you know. He's got some work for you to do. So I'm studying this passage this week. And um, I get a call from an old IV student. She wasn't very involved. She's been away in a far-off land for a number of years. Um, had a marriage that fell apart. Um, recently, very, very recently, um, had an abortion. And uh, she texted me. I haven't heard from her in six years. She texted me, and I already knew a little bit of this story because another one of her friends was trying to minister to her in the midst of it and was talking to me. So I figured, hey, she texted me. She, she wants to kind of have some sort of contact or she needs some sort of like pastoral counsel or whatever. And... Um, I couldn't think of anything better to do than to say, hey, do you have a Bible there? And she said, yeah. I said, will you turn to Luke 15? She said, sure. I said, let's turn to, to verse 11. And so um, I said, I'll just read a little bit, and then you read a little bit, and we'll just switch off. So I started reading. You know, he said there was a man who had two sons, the younger of them. Blah, blah, blah. I start going. She starts reading. I start reading. We get to this part. Um, 
where it says, and then he came to himself. And um, that's when I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, all right, preach it. <laughs> um, and I, I, just, I just told her, hey, I didn't, I didn't know you that well um, when, when, when we were around each other in college, but I can tell you with 100% certainty that who you've been the last few years is not who you are. That is not who God made you to be. And just like this younger son, the world has chewed you up and spit you out. And that's what the world is going to do. And we think, hey, I'm going to just kind of go off and I'm going to go discover myself. I'm going to define myself, define my own identity. Tim Keller says that the last heroic narrative in our culture is somebody saying, have the courage to be yourself. Which is another way of saying, have the courage to decide who you really are for, for yourself without any reference to God. Right? Have the courage to be yourself. Well, she went off and tried to find herself. And guess what she found? That that wasn't really her. She found disintegration, not integration, of herself, of her own person. And so I said, come back to Jesus. I said, I don't know really what your relationship was like with the Lord before, but come back to Jesus and you'll find who he truly intended you to be. And I said, you might feel like you've done messed up stuff, but look, this person in this story has done seriously messed up stuff. So don't trust me by my words that you can still come back to God. Trust on the basis of Jesus' word. And I, I could just see her weeping. I could just see her heart melting. I could just see her coming undone by the word of God. By what God is really like. So, back on the main road from the cul-de-sac. <laughs> I'm talking to this, uh, this man on, on the, the airplane. And uh, I get to this point, and I'm just telling him the story. I, did, I didn't show it to him in the Bible. I'm just telling him the story. And I said, and then he says to himself, he, he concocts this plan. He says, um, he came to himself and he says, Father, I, uh, I'm going to go home. I'm going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And, and I said, now the thing about it is, hired men were, were lower than servants. They were lower than slaves. Because at this time, it was different than American race-based slavery. At this time, slaves had a status in the household. In fact, some people chose to be slaves even after being released if they felt like, hey, this, this was actually a good house for me to live in. I'm treated kindly. Sometimes people would stay. But a hired hand could be let go at a day's notice. They could be let go. They had no status in the household. And, um, and I said, so he came back. He said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to the father. I'm going to say, I, knew, I know I blew it. I know I can't be your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. And I said... And he came back, and I said, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And then I said to the guy, what do you think the father said? He said, I don't know, but this is a good story. Keep going. <laughs> and I told him, I said, he said, well, look you what we have here. <laughs> look who's coming back home with empty pockets. Coming here thinking that he can just come back and plug right back into the family. I, I, I literally said this to him. <laughs> and he had no surprise in his face. 
Let me just say that. He did not have a look of surprise in his face. He was like, I mean, like... <laughs> that was probably what the father should say. I said, no. I said, listen. I, I said I was just joking. That's not what Jesus said. <laughs> I said, Jesus said, while he was still a long way off. So the father's looking for him, man. This is his hobby. This is his hobby. His life passion is to sit there and say, I just wish my son would return to me. And he's looking in the distance, and while he's still a long way off, the father sees him because he's been looking. And, and it says that he ran to him. Now, the thing that we have to understand is that patriarchs did not run. In this cultural context, children ran it might be like somewhat culturally appropriate for a mother to respond in this way, but for a father to dart out into the field full force, I mean, he would have had to lift up his robes and he would have just looked kind of ridiculous, you know? But he ran out, and, and, I, and I love that Bev, she does her research when she does these dramas. The Greek means he, he fell on his son's neck. That's an extravagant description, is it not? He fell on his son's neck, and the son starts to give his rehearsed speech, and the father will have none of it. He says, bring my robe, bring my ring. He says, bring shoes and put them on his feet. You know, an interesting thing at this time was that um, um, slaves and servants actually didn't wear shoes. Shoes were expensive, and they were designated for sons and daughters. And this was still the case um, in American slavery, that um, the African-American slaves working in the field would usually work uh, in the fields without shoes. In fact, there's old black spirituals that talk about and look forward to the day when all God's chilling got shoes. <laughs> Right? And so when the father says, bring shoes and put them on his feet, he's saying, no, not hired hand. No, not servant. Son. That's what I say to you, son. And then he says, we got to make some steak. Now, this parable has often been called the prodigal son. And that's, that's a pretty good name for it because he, he went off in a faraway land and he spent his money on prodigal living. I think This says reckless living in this translation, on prodigal living. But on the other hand, this isn't really a good name for this parable, is it? Because it's actually a parable about two sons. Right? That's the way it's actually introduced if you get out your Bible and turn to 874 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> 874. Luke chapter 15. It says, uh, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of him said, so now we're getting part one of the story. Part one is the prodigal son. The younger son said this, but if we don't remember that there's two sons, 
We're going to miss the whole punchline of the story. We're going to miss the whole context of this. John did a wonderful job unpacking this for us last week. But just, just to remind us, go back to verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. And it says here, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near him, near to Jesus, that is. So Jesus is sitting there. Man, I wonder what it was about Jesus. I wonder what it was about Jesus. It wasn't because he was a compromiser. I mean, here you have a sinless man. Never had a, never had a sinful word even pass from his mouth. And for some reason, he's attractive to sinners and tax collectors. What was it about Jesus that just kind of communicated this open door? I wonder if we communicate that. Do we communicate the sense of standoffishness? Do we communicate the sense of, well, I'll compromise so that I can get in with you? Or do we have the aroma of Christ, who was all the fullness of God in human form? He never sinned. And yet somehow... The sinners and tax collectors were lining up to be in relationship with him, lining up to be eating with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, it said. They saw this. They said, this is not right. This is not the way it works. They've said that several times, right? When, when, when Jesus is, uh, is, is with a prostitute uh, and, and she's crying at his feet, and they say, if this man was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. So, you know, the, the association between Jesus and sinners, they were like, no, no, no. That means that this guy's a sinner. Because we have to understand that for the Pharisees and the scribes, um, they, they would not associate. The, the, the word sinner was like a technical term for them. It, it included people, uh, often included people who were deformed. It included people who were tax collectors. It included people who didn't um, have a rigorous enough uh, spiritual life. Um, it included people who had been defiled by Gentiles, all this sort of stuff. And the scribes and Pharisees, they wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't marry their, their, kid, their daughters to them. They, they, wouldn't even, uh, uh, they, they wouldn't even spend extended time because they felt like it would actually defile them. So that's what they're like. Um, I, I preached on this passage about a year ago and um, made the point that, um, uh, uh, the beginning of Luke 15, that is, and made the point that um, these, these, uh, these Pharisees and scribes, they have, I'm gonna, making up a word, a decarnate spirituality. Right? They, they don't take on flesh. They don't come among people. They stay in their bubble. They have this separational tendency to say, you don't look like us. You don't think like us. You don't make the same amount as us. You're not the same ethnic group as us. And so we're going to separate ourselves from you. They have a separational spirituality. But Jesus' spirituality and also who he is in and of himself is incarnational. The word's made flesh and moves into the neighborhood. He comes among us. And so they don't like this. They, they feel like Jesus' spirituality is not separational. He must be compromising. It reminds us a lot of Jonah, does it not? It reminds us that their heart is a lot like Jonah's heart. Um, uh, and we just, we just heard a reading from Jonah a little bit ago. And at the end of the book of Jonah, he preaches. And hundreds of thousands of people repent. 
And he's upset about it. Why is he upset about it? He says, God, I knew this was going to happen. I knew if I came and preached to our enemies and preached to these sinful people that you were going to end up forgiving them. And I hate that. I hate that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Why? I wanted you to incinerate them. And the, the, the interesting thing about Jonah is it, it never resolves, does it? It never resolves. It, it just ends with God saying, should I not care about all these people? And all these animals? Should, should I not be concerned about them? And it's never resolved. And it's almost like God is posing this question to Israel through the scriptures. Are you going to be in line with my heart and be incarnational? And go to seek and save the lost? Or are you going to have a stubborn, separational heart? Don't you realize, Jonah, that in the first half of the story, you were the prodigal. That's right. So if I'm not gracious and compassionate, slow, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, you die. <laughs> but the Pharisees didn't understand that, did they? The Pharisees didn't understand that they needed the grace of God because they thought they had this pristine record that they could just present to the Lord. They actually thought that God owed them one. Right? We, we see that a little later in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee plays, prays a very self-congratulating prayer, doesn't he? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, sinners, or even like this tax collector over here. What a sinner. Look at that guy over there. You know, I fast three times a week and give a tenth of all I get to the poor. So that's, that's, that's their mentality. Is, their mentality is, I have this track record so that I can actually go to God and say, see, I've done it all, and now you owe me one. Right? I've done it all, and now you owe me one. And Jesus is, is, is offering a little bit of a subtle critique, a little bit of a not-so-subtle critique, because I hope we can see in this passage that the older son is just as lost as the younger son, just as estranged from the father's heart as the younger son. So first Jesus addresses their heart issue, that they don't want to they they, they, they uh, dwell among the lost. Their heart is not where God's heart is. Jesus says God's heart is to leave the 99 and go after the, the lost one. God's heart is to sweep things clean and go after that coin that was lost. And after each story, what happens? There's a celebration. There's a party. And Jesus makes the point, there's a party going on in heaven. There's a party going on in heaven. And if you don't understand that this is what God celebrates, then you're out of step with heaven. You're out of step with God. And so he confronts that issue in a very similar way that Jonah is confronted. And in a very similar way, this parable doesn't resolve. We don't learn what the older brother is going to do, do we? It's like it's posed to them. What are you going to do about this? Your heart is not in line with heaven. What are you going to do about this? The father wants to have a party, and you're just kind of pouting outside. So we, we've talked about how people have called this the gospel within the gospel. We've talked about how people have called it the greatest story of all time. I'm suggesting the prodigal son is only partially a good name, that it should be called 
the parable of the two sons, or you might call it the parable of the lost son. That kind of works in with the themes that were established. Um, but I also think that Tim Keller has maybe a, a good point and perhaps the best title for this story that I've ever heard, uh, which is that this is the parable of the prodigal God. That that's what's going on here. This is the parable of the prodigal God. We don't usually use this word prodigal, but the word prodigal is like wasteful extravagance, right? Just this lavishness, like this unexplainable lavishness. And Keller says, isn't the father the most prodigal one in this story? I mean, the son comes to him and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And the father gives it to him. Like, what kind of irresponsible parenting is that? But here's the thing, and, and, and that's, it's a really confusing point. Why does he give it to him? And we could debate it. You know, we could talk about what the scriptures does and doesn't say. But I think what's going on here is he already knows that he doesn't have his son's heart. He already knows he's lost. And so he gives him over to that lostness in hopes that he might be found. Romans 8 talks about all of creation being subjected to futility in order that we might experience, in order that we might receive, in order that we might walk in the freedom of sons and daughters. That's a weird phrase. All of creation is subjected to futility in hope. In hope. So I believe that the father completely hoped and, and, and desired that his son would come back to him, but come back as a son. Because he's no son right now. One of my favorite quotes is from T.S. Eliot. He says, to do the right thing for the wrong reason is treason. To do the right thing for the wrong reason is treason. The father could have forced the son to do the right thing. here, But the father doesn't seem too concerned about how other people are going to perceive him, does he? He doesn't seem too concerned about his own reputation. In the father's heart, there is security. Right? And so he gives him over to it. He subjects him to futility in hopes that he might come to himself and he might receive his son back from the dead. So we have this, this prodigal God on the loose, right? Because the Father is, is telling us something about the heart of God the Father. Let's look a little bit at what it says about the older son. Look at verse 25. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house... He heard music and dancing. Up to this point, the scribes and Pharisees haven't been a character in any of the parables. Right? There's been the son of man, who's the one seeking. He, he's, he's the shepherd who goes and leaves for the 99. He's the woman who's sleeping the, sweeping the house clean. And there's been the sinners and tax collectors. They're the sheep that, that was lost. They're the coin that was lost. But up until this point, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes haven't been a character in the parable, right? Well, here they are. Right? Jesus has kind of been holding back. He's like, all right. And I bet their ears perked up. Do you know, at the time, there was actually a phrase, something like this I was reading. It was something like, um, there is more joy over heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by the judgment of God. That, that was actually a phrase. There, there, there was a celebration of the idea, there's going to be a time where 
where uh, all these scribes and Pharisees are just singing because fire's raining down on heaven from sinners. And they said, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who's obliterated by the judgment of God. And so when Jesus says there's joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God, he's actually taking their phrase and turning it upside down. So now he's looking and he's kind of, these scribes and Pharisees, you better believe their ears have perked up. And they said, all right, now we're in the story. What's this guy going to do? And they're listening because they're like, this guy tells better stories than me. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what I'm going to do if I, if I don't end up looking good in this. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> he heard the music and dancing, and uh, he called one of the servants. Isn't this interesting? He says, come here. Hey. Hey. He's like through the window. Hey, you. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even want to go in there, right? He, he calls one of the servants. To come out to him, and he said, and the servant says to him, Your brothers come home. The servant's heart is in line with the father. Right? Your brothers come home, right? And um, your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. This would have been the most expensive meal that this father had ever put on. To kill the fattened calf, that was like the epic celebration of a lifetime. It was, it, it was actually fairly rare that people would eat meat with a meal at this time. But when they did eat meat, you know, something like lamb or goat or something like that was more common, and even that was a great celebration. So to kill the fattened calf, I mean, this is the greatest celebration that the Father has ever put on. This is probably, for any of you who are fathers, this is probably the greatest day of his life. The greatest day of the Father's life. Are you kidding me? This son's been away. He's been lost. He's been in a dungeon. I don't even know if he's alive. And if he is alive, I don't know if he's so morally compromised himself, gone so far that he'll ever come back. This is the greatest day of the father's life. And he's celebrating. And it says in verse 28, but the older brother was angry and refused to go in. I mean, it's just a picture of just stubborn childishness. There's a party going on, and he's making a scene. It's the greatest day in his father's life, and he wants to take it away from him. You don't think the older brother's lost? Man, the older brother is every bit as lost as the younger brother was. He wants to take it away from his father. And so he wants to stand outside and just pout and make a scene and huff and puff. And what does the father do? Man, if we were guessing the same way, as, uh, as, as, as this guy on the plane thought was completely sensible, and the father would have every right, right to beat on and banish this older brother. I say, what's the matter with you? We've been praying for your brother to come back for how many years? Here he's, here he's back. Just get out of here. You're not even, you, you're so far from my heart, I don't even have, want to have any dealing with you. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the father's prodigal love extends to the older brother? extends to the scribes and the Pharisees. This can actually be an easy thing for us to miss because sometimes, especially as Protestant Christians, it's like, hey, we got the message. We need to be loving to people, even, even the down and outs, even sinners, even people that we think are worse than us. But do we actually have compassion for hard-hearted religious people? Do we have compassion for people who name the name of God and whose hearts are far from Him? People who have the scriptures memorized, as the scribes and the Pharisees did, and yet they don't even know 
the God of the Bible. They don't actually have a relationship with Him. Well, the prodigal God has a heart for them. It says in the second half of verse 28, the father came out and entreated him. What a disgraceful thing. It says disgraceful is picking up your robes and running across the field. He's pleading with his son. He's, son, you know, people are looking out the window saying, what's, what's going on here? You know, all the father's honor, his heart is on the table, man. Completely vulnerable. He's entreating the son. He's saying, please come, come. You have to come back in. And, 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 and we see the hard-heartedness of the older brother continue here, don't we? He says, this son of yours. Right? He doesn't even want to claim him as his brother. Right? It reminds me of um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero. And at the end, uh, he says to the, to the lawyer, um, so who was a neighbor to this man? And, and the lawyer says, uh, the one who had mercy on him. <laughs> like, he doesn't even want to say Samaritan. You know, He doesn't like that he's been put in this corner and he's been tricked by Jesus and he's like, yeah. Well, this guy, he's like, I don't even want to claim this guy. This is this son of yours. He's more like you. You're wasteful. You're a prodigal father. What are you doing? This was your inheritance. This was a third of what we have. And here I've been... All these years slaving in the field. See, it's, it's all been slavish obedience for him. It hasn't been love. The father hasn't had his heart either. We see it all along. He's been around the father. The father says, son, you're always with me. Don't you understand? He's trying to, he's trying to nurture his perspectives. Everything I have is yours. What are you talking about? I remember um, in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Space Trilogy, in the first book, uh, Out of the Silent Planet, there's this really powerful scene because this guy is kidnapped and taken to another planet. We learn later that it's Mars, but it looks really strange, and there's purple trees, and there's high pointy mountains, and there's water that looks poisonous. And he immediately, when he gets to the planet, finds a way of escaping from his captors. But then he's in this terrifying environment because he's seeing all these animals and he doesn't know what's edible. I mean, he's halfway across the galaxy, has no idea where he is. And it says that he begins to be hungry, super hungry to the point of starvation. And, uh, and he curses this land that he's living in with its poisonous looking water and purple trees. And he's like, he doesn't want to risk eating anything. He just doesn't know what to do. And, and we actually find out, here's the interesting thing, we find out later in the story that, um, um, that even the ground he was walking on, there's this, there's this uh, pinkish, whitish weed that's everywhere in, in, this, in Malacandra and in Mars. And even that weed is edible. And, uh, and there's this line in the book, it says something like, um, so if he would have starved, he would have starved in the midst of abundance. <laughs> this older brother feels starved for love, starved for affirmation. This is what his father's like? Are you kidding me? This guy's starving in the midst of abundance. I think um, that gratitude in our heart is just one of the fundamental uh, virtues of, of a person that's following Jesus. 
Because we know that we are sinners. We know we've been saved. We know we've been purchased at great cost to God Himself. So how can we sit there with this grumbly heart? We should have grateful hearts. But at the same time, I ask you, maybe there's wives in this room, and maybe you got like a, man, you got like a pretty upright husband. And he loves you, and he, he's, he, he's been a good father to his children, and, you know, he's trying to provide and trying to follow Jesus. And, man, do you, do you realize that you have this man in your house with you? Or do you have a grumbly heart, you know? Or, or, or maybe you're a husband, and, and, and somehow this beautiful woman that's willing to lay next to you at night was willing to marry a bozo like you. <laughs> And then you want to like log online and look up some pictures of some woman that you've never met before in transgression of this relationship. Man, we're starving in the midst of abundance because we don't have the appropriate gratitude in our heart. This was an ungrateful son. He says, When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes... The interesting thing is the parable hadn't said anything about prostitutes up to this point. That was his own insertion. Right? A lot of times if you have a pharisaical brain, you're imputing sins on people they might not have ever committed. I mean, maybe, maybe the younger son did this, but I think ask yourself. Here's a, here's a big brother test. When you're, when you're in a religious environment, you know, like, you know, like this service, <laughs> you know, are, are, do you have an... This, this sort of other-centered, like, oh, I know that person better be hearing this word. You know what I'm saying? Or, or I mean, it, I mean it's, okay, it's okay to want the, the Lord's word to work in people's lives, but, but do you have this sort of inner attitude of the older brother where you're just kind of like, I'm good. I fast. I do my quiet time. I, I, you know, I've been a, an obedient Christian my whole life, and I, I don't know what to say about these people over here. I don't know what they got going on in their life. Do we have that kind of attitude? Or do we have an attitude that says, hey, this is actually about the Father. This is actually about what an amazing Father we have and how we dwell in the midst of the abundance that He's given us. He said, when this son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And this is what I want to end with. I want to end just considering the pleading love of the Father, the bleeding love of the Son. Son of God. The Father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is a very important text for us to understand what's going on when we're saved from sin and death. Because it's the gospel is not a program of moral improvement. You know, the gospel is not, hey, I, I used to be a level three on the moral chart. And because of Jesus, now I'm a level seven. And somewhere in the midst of getting from three to seven, I got saved. No, the gospel is not about making bad men good. It's about making dead men alive. And that can only happen through the substitutionary death of Jesus, who, who brings his perfect record on our behalf. We come with our record of foolishness and sin, and Jesus takes that and gives us His righteousness. 
His righteous status. Our, status. our status as sons and daughters come from the status of the eternal Son of God. We're only sons and daughters if we're sons and daughters in Him. We're standing, we're putting the full weight of our trust in Him, in the Son. And, and of course, you know, if we really know the Lord and the Lord's at work in our life, He brings transformation. Of course he brings transformation. Of course he brings repentance. The word repentance is used several times in this passage. Um, and it happens at different speeds for different people. I've seen people whose lives have got completely turned around, like immediately. For me, it took a while to tease uh, certain things out. And the Lord's still at work in me. The Lord's still at work in you. The Lord's still at work in all of us who name the name of Jesus. But this, 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 this whole, um, you know... I, I'm good so that I can be loved by God. That's not the gospel. That's religion. That's every other religion in the world. That's every other religion in the world. I mean, you want to talk about Hinduism, Buddhism, any karma-based religion? That's exactly what the message is. You want to talk about uh, what, whatever, whatever the case may be. I, I, there was, one time there was these, uh, these Oxford teachers. They were arguing in a room about what's unique about Christianity. And C.S. Lewis entered the room, and they said, Clive, Jack, probably call him Jack. They said, um, what, what's, the, what's the difference between Christianity and other religions? And he said, oh, that's easy, grace. Grace. Because religion says, be good and God will love you. And the gospel says, God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. He so prodigally loved the world. That he picked up his robes and ran across the field. He so prodigally loved the world. That he left the party and pleaded with the son. That he gave his one and only son. He gave his only son. That's the father's heart to the world. That's the stamp. I mean, that, that's the Christian's message. That's the stamp that... that Jesus left on the whole world. That this is the kind of God that's behind the heavens. We never even imagined it. We never even dreamed it. That kind of God. God already loves us. Religion says, be good so that God will love you. The gospel says, God already loves you with a prodigal love. And then it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Repentance is critical, of course. We're not going to pull the wool over God's eyes and be like, hey, we really want to be in your house, but we really don't, and we're going to kind of try to do our own thing, and our hearts are going to be far from you. For now, that's, don't, don't play games with the Father. The Father already knows your heart. You can't trick Him. You can trick yourself. You can't trick the Father. So I just encourage you this morning. You might feel like, there's an older brother living in my heart. There's a religious, criticizing, separational little voice in my head. And, and it's, it's so, it looms so large, I, it's hard for me to see the Father. Or you might feel like, man, too much of this younger son is living in my heart. And this stuff, this stuff that the world is feasting on, this food that the pigs are eating... And it's, it's good for a while. Doritos are better than the starvation diet. But none of it is going to provide the sustenance, 
the feast that you need. I pray that you would come to yourself and realize the feast is never going to be there. And when you've eaten a meal of Doritos and you're lining up for your second serving, it doesn't taste good and it leaves you with indigestion. <laughs> so come to the banquet that the Father has already laid in front of you. He's pleading with you. He's running for you. He sent His only Son to die for you. That's the imminent Trinity. That's the eternal heart of God. Wake us up, Father. Wake us up. All that you have is ours. All that you have is ours. Your answer is already and always yes in Christ. And if you've subjected us to futility, it's been in hope that we might return as sons and daughters. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.